Hey everybody, this is the Coach You Podcast and I'm your host, Coach You. This podcast is about being curious, learning from others, and using what we've learned to evolve every single day. We're being joined today by Dr. Josh Heenan, who's the creator of the 90 Mile Per Hour Formula, and he's also the founder and president of Advanced Therapy Performance. For all the coaches and athletes out there listening, definitely take notes because Josh talks about some things in his training philosophy that I think are very important for us to understand and to start implementing because as the times change, so does science, so does our training, and that means we have to evolve with it. If you enjoy this episode and you know somebody else will as well, please share it, make sure to like, and then leave some comments. You're welcome to reach out and let me know if you guys have any questions. Hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dr. Josh Heenan. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Coach You Podcast. I'm your host, Coach You. Today, we're being joined by Dr. Josh Heenan, who's the creator of the 90 Mile Per Hour Formula, as well as the founder and president of Advanced Therapy Performance, which the headship or the flagship is located in Stanford, Connecticut. But I just found out that you're in Denver. So but first, Josh, man, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you for having me. It's been a while. It has been a while. So, so you're in Denver, but your your flagship's out in Stanford. So, tell me what what is the uh, what does this look like? You managing both spots? Yeah. So, um, I do I do a little bit of treatment and training out here um, with select clientele, um, mainly our athletes uh, and clients that fly in and stay for a week or two, um, and then I travel back to the East Coast pretty regularly. Um, and I have a fantastic staff, and so I'm I'm on the back end a lot of times building systems and and whether it's business related or like our training systems, training and therapy and coaching our staff and then getting back and getting my hands dirty with our athletes on, on the East coast. So I'm kind of bouncing around and, and, uh, wherever, wherever the airplanes take me, I go. Nice, man. Um, so like you kind of answered like what you do, you do some back end, you do a lot of back end stuff. You go back and forth. You do still see uh, clients, but what does a day look like in the life of Josh Heenan? Yeah. Um, it's very different day to day. Um, it, it just depends on on the needs, but usually I get a couple of complex cases that I'm either doing on site or remote uh, consults with. And when I say complex, it's either it usually is longer term athletes uh, or non athletes that have had pain for a long time that can't figure it out. They've gone mm-hmm. through whether it's multiple surgeries or um, or different uh, therapy approaches that just they can't get it to clear. And so I'll do. I'll do those consults uh, on site or remotely. Um, I'd rather do them on site because I like getting my hands dirty and, and being able to, you know, um, do soft tissue work, needle, whatever, whatever we got to do to get them right if that's the case, and then train them, uh, and then and then uh, you know respond to emails, posting stuff, uh, managing our teams, like I said, helping build systems, and and really I think my my grand scheme is always trying to kind of figure out the matrix of like our pain performance. Um, mental training, mental well-being, nutrition, how it all kind of plays together. Nice. Nice. And that's, I mean, it's funny you said the mental stuff and because, uh, you know, I saw you, I saw you speak in Los Angeles at the Los Angeles Dodgers Symposium. Uh, I think it was 2021. It must yep. have been December 2021. Um, and that was one thing that stood out was one, your approach to training, you were echoing a lot of things that I thought about training as well, but hadn't really, you know, when you could feel something, but you don't know the science behind it, or maybe the the actual uh, effect of it, but you're like, ah, oh, but I know that this is right, right. And, you know, you said a lot of those things. And one of the things for sure was mental health. And you talked about uh, how in college and high schools, it's very prominent right now, mental health, you know, the, the kids are, they're showing more signs of depression, more signs of possible suicide. And I mean, even here in Los Angeles, we've had a couple of high schools, private schools, student athletes who have committed suicide over the past year. And it's tragic, right? So, you know, I think it's important that we make sure that that's the first question. So, you know, what is your role as a coach, as a leader, um, you know, when building your system, when it comes to mental health? Yeah. And I think it, you, you touched on some good points there because it's, it's tough. The, the role of strength and conditioning, I'll put quotes around that. Um, from when I first got interested in it, when I was 14, 15 years old, 13 years old, is very different than what it is now, in my opinion, because, because we are the first line of defense on, on everything. And, and we are the one that gets to contact these, these athletes regularly. My wife's an internist and pediatrician, and she's a fantastic doctor, super way smarter than me, and, and really understands what's going on with the physiology of people. Um, but she gets her and I banter all the time. She gets two, maybe three 20 minute visits a year with a lot of her patients. And, wow. and 
and and that's and that's not that's not a knock on her or her business or, or no. her her profession. It's it's just the way the system's set up right now. So she's you know they come athletes whether um, you know clients and patients are coming in at any ages and having a whole life of different things that they're trying to accomplish. And to do that in 20 minutes, it's like, you got to pick the biggest dominoes that are going to move the things forward. Whereas like I tell, I tell our staff, I'm like, we were gifted two to seven hours a week with our, with our clients. Like, like if we can't make these monstrous changes with our clients, we are not, we are not providing a good enough value that people should be paying for. So, so for me, it's, it's, um, I, I have a lot of education in a lot of different fields and it's not because I ever want to like run and do different things. It's because I really want to be able to grab something and be like, wait a second, this person needs to go see a neurologist or this person needs to go see a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And so we can refer them out even quicker because I'd rather be able to understand the red flags more from a practitioner zone than just like a kind of a bystander. It's like, oh, that doesn't sound right. And even if something doesn't sound right to me, at least I feel like I, I know the right person to hand them off to. And I feel mm-hmm. like us as a frontline provider, um, uh, whether it's personal training, strength conditioning, whatnot, um, we have we have so much access to these people and we get so much out of our athletes, especially the younger ones, where we hear things that are going on, on the weekends about kids that like mom and dad will never hear about. And and we have to teeter that line of what's of what's um uh, you know, acceptable in terms of health and well-being, and what's safe and what's not, and and also understand that a lot of us, and I'm, I'm sure you probably this probably resonates with you. I feel like we're just big brothers. We're educated big brothers for most mm-hmm. of these younger athletes. It's oh yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not going to slap them on the wrist for doing something wrong. I'm going to be like, hey man, there's consequences to this shit. Yep. Pardon, pardon my language. Sorry, right, it's the Boston. <laughs> we already talked about this. We knew it was coming at some point. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's interesting because I do think it is hard to toe that line, um, especially because as a coach, you want to be relatable. You need to be able to connect with your, your athletes. And you also have to be able to hold that line, hold that boundary as a coach. What are some of the things that you're looking out for, uh, on the mental side that maybe, Hey, like, I, I think we should possibly talk to you. Maybe you want to go see a psychiatrist. Yeah. I think anything, obviously anything where, where we hear about, um, inflicting injury to self or others is like, is obvious red flag. We get, we, we, you know, that's where we have to get our, our parents and families involved immediately. Um, but honestly, it's, I think, I think what we're going to learn and I'll give a, a personal example. Um, I think what we're going to learn in the, in the coming 10, 20 years, I hope sooner that the spectrum of this stuff is so diverse mm. that, that it's, that it's going to be really challenging to nail down individual things. I, I have been training, lifting weights, type stuff since I was 13 years old. My dad was in, my dad enjoyed the field. So I was constantly in it and I just loved it. Um, and, and when my wife and I moved, um, for her residency, we moved to another location. We moved to Omaha, Nebraska. We're there for four years. And I would say, I think it was the second year there. And I think my son had just been born my first son. And, um, and I remember going to the gym, um, and I crank and I don't really drink a lot of caffeine normally, but I cranked like 300 milligrams of caffeine. I, I was, I was ready to go, baby. I am not, I mean, right now I think I have 30 milligrams and this is as much as I'll drink in like a week. Um, oh, wow. yeah. So I don't really drink caffeine. So I was like cranking caffeine. I was like really pumping to get to, to the gym. Um, and, and I remember a couple of times going, going to the gym and making a phone call and then, and then, you know, talking to a couple of people and then being like, you know what? I got no motivation to do this today. I'm out. And that, and, and it's funny thinking of that for someone who's trained five or six days a week, probably 20 years, almost maybe more now. Um, and that happened for about a two week window. And then finally I just kind of realized I was, I was burnt out or whatnot. And my wife and I had talked about it. It's like, like, was I clinically depressed or anything? No, absolutely not. Like I was good, but I probably had some form of quote unquote depression, right? I was, de- sure. my, my mood was depressed. I, I I wasn't as vibrant. My sleep wasn't good. I had to get 300 milligrams of caffeine to get me out the door, let alone to the gym. So like those, it, it, the spectrum of it is so interesting. If you have an athlete that comes and trains with you and a great simple example, uh, we have one uh, UCL guy, 10 weeks, uh, 10 months out of post-op and, and he, um, he has made great progress the whole time in the last four weeks. He's really struggled. 
And in these last four weeks, he's never missed a training session. In the last four weeks, he went from four sessions a week to two sessions a week. And those sessions were meh at best um, on site with our team. And so we talked to him about it and we realized like, hey, he's just he's just a little burnt out. But mm. that burnout can slowly lead into other things, right? And then you yeah. get potential substance abuse, you get other things. And then it's it, you create this kind of nasty um, mix of things going on. So it's it's uh, really, it's getting to know your athletes and understanding who they are and if something doesn't seem right, that's when the red flag should go up, in my opinion. No, I love that. It's it's interesting you're talking about that now because uh, injuries can cause so many emotional uh, um, sidewinding roads. Like, right, you have you're, you think you're on this linear path, and then you know you got to derail for a little bit, and that depression can be real because it is an identity too for a lot of these athletes, which is tough, right? Because you they they love the sport that they're they're giving their all for it. Um, and then you run into a, a block like this and in the moment, it's probably the hardest thing for them to be dealing with. Obviously in hindsight, it can build more resiliency and it can build a, a stronger character. Uh, but going through that is super, super difficult. And I think as coaches, we definitely have to be more aware of those things. So I'm glad you're, you know, you are uh, at the forefront and you're, you're, you're making that a part of your training because it's so important. It's just so important yeah, for sure. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's talk about your training philosophy. Cause I do want to hear just, you know, obviously if, if you're given your elevator pitch, like how would you describe your training philosophy? So we look at, we look at the whole human and we look at all facets, whether it's mental side, movement side, orthopedics. And, and if we're going to look at, um, the baseline of everything, I look at the orthopedics of a human first. I look at their bony structure. I want to see how they, how we can manipulate their movement without, without, um, their musculature invading and, 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 uh, creating restrictions. And then we look at how they move and then we start to decipher where those changes are. Um, so for instance, if we have someone that has like a limited cervical rotation, um, if they have limited cervical rotation and standing, but we put them on a table and we can rotate their neck all day long, then, then we know we have something musculature or neurological that's, that's impacting this. So I want to, I really try to section our, our athletes into, is this orthopedic? Is this movement? Is this neurological? And I don't mean neurological as like my fingers are tingly, like that could be neurological, but more so perceived. What is our brain perceiving? So anything with the brain, what is our brain perceiving? as like resistance and why are we not going, why are we not moving a certain way? And why is the brain saying, Hey, I don't want you to do that. Or I'm creating pain in that position. Is that the vestibular portion? Is that what you're training? So that at? is, that is eyes. That is vestibular system. Um, it, which, uh, that is your ears. It's, it's your proprioception of every organ in your body. It's proprioception of your skin of, of um, your sensory awareness of like your toes, it's it's everything. And then we even can go further into the um, the Chinese medicine portion, which which I think a lot of Chinese medicine gets a bad rap because it's because it's um, it's kind of folklore science. But I can show, but we can we can show you through. I could stick a needle in someone's right ankle and get rid of their shoulder pain. Um, if they have a correct diagnosis. And, and I believe that is not necessary. Chinese medicine would say that is more so meridian balancing techniques. But I think this, all it is, is just says, Hey, brain, we have the opportunity to be here pain-free. Let's, let's move pain-free. We're going to teach you how to do that. And we're going to give you a stimulus and it's going to light up a portion of your brain. And that's so, so I want to see what happens um, in all those facets. And then I also, we use that in our, in our, very specific work, whether it's like using a five ounce ball to throw a normal regulation size ball or a nine ounce ball, we're going to get a different influence on our trunk stability, our orthopedics, um, our neurological restrictions based on the inputs that we give our body and, and the outputs will be the different trunk um, stability requirements that we need to throw a ball of a different weight and different size. Nice. It's, it's, it, it can be very complex because everyone's so different and you have different bodies coming in all the time. Um, so, you know, and we'll, I'll talk to you more about that uh, soon, but I do want to talk to you about how you prioritize the movements. And um, one thing that you did say back in that symposium, you know, I did take notes. I was diligent. I wanted to <laughs> I actually ask you so many questions then. I was like, no, we're going to wait. This needs to be a podcast episode. So okay. um, you talked about max effort versus the movements, right? And that's been a big thing uh, over the past couple of years that's become more popular. And I'm glad it is because I've 
often thought about that. We're like, we just, these guys just want to load up the weights. And I totally understand that being a lifter, you know, being an athlete, you want to be strong, you want to compete with everyone else. But, you know, how often should be, we be focusing on maxes? Why is it important for us to prioritize movement first? Yeah. So, so I think, I think they, they, they go hand in hand um, and movements matter because that's going to influence our muscular structure, our neurological um, restrictions and our neurological input. Um, but where I think, where I think people get lost on this and, and I, I think it's pretty simple. We can, we can narrow it down to our low thr- threshold and our high threshold strategies. And I'm, I don't remember if I actually talked about it in, in the symposium, but um that's where we see the biggest changes with our athletes. So low threshold strategy is like, Hey, I'm going to pick up something relatively light. Let's call it 30% of my one rep max to, to 70%. I'm going to pick it up off the ground and I'm going to carry it over somewhere and then put it back down. You're using a, um, we call it a low threshold strategy. I, I like to think of it as like a very simple, like this is going to be an easy strategy um, versus high threshold where I, where I see it high threshold is like 85 to 90% plus to max effort. Um, that's when I, I constantly think of like the high school guys, you, you walk into a high school weight room and you see an athlete trying to go for the, for a one rep max on their deadlift. And you see them rounding their back, like, like a dog going in the bathroom. It's like, they're just, they're flexing their necks extended, all these things. Right. And that, in that one, that high threshold strategy is, is a fantastic tool for a neurological system saying, Hey, we can get in these positions and we can help move some more load. And if you look at power lifters, and this is this is an easy example. It's like powerlifters when they a, a large vast majority of elite powerlifters will round their spine when they go mm. to deadlift, right? right. It's like right. that, it, which is perfectly fine. Our, our spines are are able to handle those those shearing forces, and we're good. Um, but our athletes, our pitchers, for instance, if we want them to to have a max effort throw on the mound, I want them to be able to control their spine. And that's what I think the deadlift is doing. And that's what I think when we're doing a high threshold strategy, we're looking at like a one rep max or like a three rep max, or we're going to do sets of, you know, at 90 or above 90% or above their one rep max. We're testing their movement capacity at high threshold strategy to see what breaks down because where, where we have those breakdowns in the gym, we almost always have on the field. And, and that's where we see those issues. That's why when we see a poor lunge executed at one rep max, and then we go and look at their throwing mechanics, it's like, hey, usually they're, they're overlapping. So a lot of people are like, oh, we squat our athletes. I'm like, fine, we squat our athletes too. I talk about the lunge because the lunge is our opportunity um, to, to train that pattern more than your athletes. So we're going to get our guys lunging more. Um, more regularly in better patterns so that when they go to do it on the field, it's second nature. Right. And, and the thing too, with the lunge versus the squat, and that's just what I talk to my coaches about. And also my athletes is the, that's the position you're going to be in a lot is on that single leg in that position. So why would you not want to get strong in that position? So real quick on, I want to talk deadlift real quick. I want to talk squat. Why, what are the main things you're looking for on your deadlift for for your your pitchers and also for your squat? If you're squatting, I'm like, you know, I don't know if you're going max effort, but like, what? How do you use both of those moves? So, so our uh, deadlift, real simple. Um, regardless of um, sport, unless their sport is powerlifting, I want to see them control their spine. So, I want a neutral spine from the base of their skull down to their sacrum. Um, when they're going to pick up the load, control it the whole time where they're not extending their neck um, and they're not uh, flexing their lumbar spine and they're able to control it, get tall, flex their glutes, and then being able to control that movement back down to the ground so they can control that eccentric force. Um, Are there times where we push it and we might have them drop the bar at a one rep max or something like that? Sure. But as a general rule of thumb, that's what we're looking for because I care about performance and performance is going to be dictated in my opinion by your ability to control your spine our our squat will load our squat to basically any parameters i'm i'm open to it all as long as they have good um movement ortho uh, movements good orthopedics that will allow them to get proper hip separation um um in each uh joint and making sure that they can get enough uh hip flexion and and um, being able to create a, a tall spine where they're controlling their neck. And I think the neck is often the symptom, whether they hyperextend their neck or they rotate or they tilt, 
that symptom we often see with like our throwers, we end up seeing like elbow pain, shoulder pain type deals on, on the field. So, you know, I'm, I'm agnostic to the moves as long as the moves are making our athletes more athletic in removing pain or not creating pain. Got okay. it. So you got to answer the why you got to be able to answer the why, why you're doing the move. And that's, that's the whole thing with our field. You and I can, you could tell me all day long, I don't lunge our guys because of this. And I squat them because of this. And I can only debate you on those facts. But if you have stuff and you're like, Hey, my guys respond better with the squat and and I have numbers to dictate that I can, we can debate it, but you're going to run with that because you have right. a valid reason for it. My right. staff and, and just to kind of uh, circle it out, it's like, my staff trains our athletes very differently than I do at times. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean that um, we have, we have two real top tiers in our company. Um, and we have a, a set of therapists that come from chiropractic land, PT land, athletic training. We have strength coaches, we have mental performance coaches, and we have kind of everything else in between. Um, we use the SFMA. So the selective functional movement assessment, which is kind of like the quote unquote, like medical version of the FMS. It's just, it's, it's just a, a, a more joint specific version of the FMS that we use as our top tier. And then we use the 90 mile hour formula, um, which, which you uh, talked about earlier. And really we're testing our lunge deadlift and chin up metrics. Um, and that is just a parameter. We might not test it day one. We might not test it week, week seven with an athlete. We, we just want to be able to know like, Hey, why are we, why are we training these metrics? And can we make these metrics move if, if they're important for that athlete, anything else our, our staff does, I don't care. Like, like, I don't care if you're a PRI guy, a SFMA, SFMA or uh, FRC or whatever, like, like, or if you're a chiropractor and you just want to pop someone's neck, like if it's appropriate and it influences, um, our SFMA to be better or, or 90 mile hour formula metrics to be better, uh, the training and therapy will work themselves out. So training protocols, like loading protocols, I probably load our guys heavier than some of our staff because our staff's like, Hey, I want to make sure this movement's better. And, and I can't, I can't knock it. They have justification for what they're doing. Right. Right. That's where it's tough too, because I know that you know, as an athlete, you and I, 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 you're an athlete, I'm an athlete, like we've, we've been there. You want to lift, you want to get after it. Um, I do, I have over the years and I've grown through it and, you know, you realize there's sometimes where you do need to practice that movement. Cause you're, you're essentially telling your DNA what to do, how to, how to train and you're recoding yourself. And if you're doing it over and over with poor fashion, that's where we can run into some issues. So like, how do you, how do you tow that line? Well, I think, I think the movement, movement quality will trump most, not all, but most, um, movement quality under load trumps most. And then, and then understanding that, like, what is, what is the ultimate outcome of objective of your, of your training? And, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's the easy way for us to backfill whatever we're going to do with our athletes. I'm fine. I'll go on record and say, I'm fine bench pressing, um, pitchers. But I'll tell you, I can't tell you the last picture I've ever bench pressed because because I know when we have our bench, we have our athletes who are are hard throwers, we get them under a bar regularly. They're going to develop stiffness in their chest and anterior shoulder um, if they if they're going to start to really load those patterns. Is that a horrible thing? No. Is it a horrible thing if you're trying to make a 20 year career with having arguably hypermobility or or hyper external rotation with tons of fascial um, and musculature um, uh, flexibility and and durability in the anterior portion of your chest and your, your shoulders. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to, whatever you chew away at the front, you're going to lose at the back. And whenever you chew away at the back, you're going to lose at the front. So we we're playing a big, big fascial orthopedic game. And if you want to play it for 20, 20 plus years, you're going to have to play it a little bit differently than the other guys that are going to go on bench every time. It's not to say people won't get away with it. It's not to say bench pressing is bad, but there, but there are better avenues. If your outcome is driven, if you're, if you're trying to drive a particular outcome, in my opinion. It is one of those things too. It's tough. Cause like one thing that I love that you talked about, and I think you're even saying now is you have to experiment sometimes. Like not every single move is going to work. And like you said, it's hey, we may not test the guy for this X amount of time because we have other things that are more important at this point before we can get to that. So, you know, how, how do you use experimentation? How do you use different kinds of tests to kind of guide you through the training? 
This is is a good question. And I actually have a post lined up about this coming up. Um, You better tag me then. I will. I will. I will tag you on it. I promise. Um, So for me, I never want to give an athlete something I haven't done. I have done, I have done it all. I competed in Olympic lifting, I competed in powerlifting. I've done very high volume. I've done very low volume. I did yoga at 5.30 this morning. Like, like there's, I will, I will test and play with different things and understand, and I will understand that I am a, I am a um, experiment of one. I'm a very, you know, I'm 36 years old. I have certain injury history. I have certain neurological deficits. I have different things that you're going to have than you're going to have or our athletes, but I want to understand how it feels and I want to understand how it looks and I want to understand what the practicality is um, to implement those things from there. If I've done it and I feel like there's, there's value to it, which there usually is value to every program that you'll ever go through. If you really kind of tinker with it, um, and, and try to f- listen and feel what, what changes are happening. Um, then it's, then every athlete's an experiment. Yeah. We have, we have certain, yeah. we have certain things that I know will work, um, because of our history. And if you add enough calories, like, all right, they're going to get stronger in this position. They're going to gain weight and great. Uh, but every single person is a little bit different and, and back to the whole mental side, it's like, you can, you could put a kid on German volume training and have him have great results. Um, and you know, 10 sets of 10, five days a week, like just like a very particular body, um, body part every single time, more bodybuilding style. Uh, and we've seen great results with that and not something we'll use a lot with our athletes, but, but little bits and pieces, we might do a little phase, but if that kid has, um, you know, he's got parents barking up him. Um, you know, he's super anxious. He's struggling in school. Mm-hmm. If we don't give him enough calories and he can't consume enough calories because he's like got real, real anxiety and, and needs to be medicated for it. And mom and dad are like, we don't want our kid to be diagnosed with anxiety. Like, why would he have anxiety? It's like, well, we're not going to be able to put on weight on that kid. And if you're going to give him heavy volume on top of that, yeah, he's going to get crushed. So like you, so understanding the parameters and, and it's, it, they're all, um, I tell our interns all the time, and I, I think I actually said it at the seminar, but um, if you go to war and you get your leg blown off and you're out on the battlefield, oftentimes they'll give you heroin to calm your nervous system down to elicit, um, decrease the pain, help, help uh, clot the bleeding and, and create this neurological change that they can get you to wherever they need to get you so that you can survive, right? Right. Great use of heroin. If you're using heroin on Friday night to go have a good time, we could argue that's probably not the appropriate use of that tool. Right. Heroin's not a bad thing. Heroin is a tool that can be used properly and properly. A lunge, a deadlift, a squat, it's the same thing. I tell our interns, it's the right tool at the right time for the right purpose, uh, for the right person, for the right purpose. It needs to be, you need to be uh, a sniper with your approach and know what you're trying to get out of the athlete and know if they're going to be able to handle that. Yeah. Yeah. It's where you work backwards also. Right. And you're able to exactly. kind of see what the, the end, what's, what am I trying to get to? Okay. Now how do I problem solve this and be strategic about it? And I would argue too, most of the time we're probably using very similar moves We're we're experimenting with the same patterns, but, um, it's little, it's little tinking, you know, tinkering with this a little bit, you know, moving this around, maybe some volume, like you said, we'll try some different modalities, whatever the case is. Um, but no, that's great, man. I, I, uh, I, I definitely follow that very well. And it speaks to me too. Cause it's like, I, I try not to give my athletes anything that I haven't done, which right. it, it's tough sometimes because there's new stuff coming out all the time. That's like, Hey, I want to give that a shot, but I haven't gotten to that yet. You know, that kind of stuff. But yep. what do you think about like, and this is where it gets tough. Right. I told you, you know, the baseball Academy that I'm part of uh, part owner of, we have travel teams. These kids are playing 24 seven now. Like it's crazy. So there is no in season off season anymore. Right. Um, so one for, from a coaching perspective and then from an athlete perspective, how do you, how do you program in season, off season, you know, whatever you want to call that now, uh, knowing that some kids play multiple sports, some kids have practices two to three days a week. Some kids are playing high school and travel on the weekend. So where do they get their lifts in? Where do they, how do they start to structure that better? And then as coaches, what are things that we need to think about? Yeah. So, so I'll, g- I'll give you two examples. The first one will be like our pro guys, our pro guys. I know whether or not they want to say it, they're probably a little burnt out at the end of the season, you know, a hundred something games. 
and on the road. And most of them, you know, most of them are not big leaguers. So they're, they're just like, I do not want to ever see a baseball ever again. Um, and, and, and I, and I love that because when they're honest about it, it's like, it's just tough. I mean, it becomes a job. So I want them to take, I want them to take a week or two. They can train and do it. If stuff they want to come in, that's fine. But I want them to take a week or two to get themselves mentally prepared. And then usually let's call it, let's say it's a right-handed thrower we'll start our first phase of the off season, usually being very um, uh, li- uh, linear and sagittal based training. So we might, we might throw in some squats. We might ditch, we might ditch some um, reverse lunges or split squats, uh, or we might add them in. Um, Cause that's got a little bit more ro- uh, ro- rotary component. Um, and depending on how dinged up they are, we may go right into rotational movements only towards the dominant side. So if they're right-handed thrower, they're rotating left. We may only do um, right rotation stuff for the first month or two to right. get them more, more ba- quote unquote balanced um, if they have those things. So that's kind of how we'll, we'll look at it and say like, where do they need work? Where do they need um, that specificity and how much can we get them back to like a neutral state with our, with our high school and college athletes that are like, like you said, playing 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it seems. Um, we're looking for two to three times a week, minimum year round, um, in that, and, and, you know, obviously there's rainouts and things that come into play, but in general, two to three times a week between 45 minutes and an hour and a half is usually something that they can do if they are serious about wanting to play at the next level. It, it is a priority. They have to prioritize it and we will program based on their needs. There are athletes we have in that you would look and you'd be like, that training is like, okay, that the training's good for, for what they need. But you, but if you really look into their warmups, their warmups is really like what I talk about a lot. It's like athlete first, like we're, we're going to have them run passing routes. We're going to have them play tag. We're going to have, I want them to be athletes and have fun yep. and, and be able to really challenge their fascial system, their neurological system, their reaction, their eyes, uh, eye tracking, like, we we want to incorporate all those things. So figuring out where they are, both physically, mentally, um, and even and emotionally, um, is really important for us as we're as we're teasing those things in, and as we're seeing that we can add more load and get more specific, we'll start to add those things. Some athletes are some athletes, as you know, like we have. There's there's a bunch of guys I can think of right now that are like we've had since middle school to high school. And if I told them to do whatever, they would do it because like they're going to be a pro athlete and they will end up being pros or they are pros. Um, and we have other athletes that we need to kind of nurse in certain situations be like, Hey, like mom and dad have been barking at them for months because they've been playing every single showcase. They're burnt out. Their elbows been barking. Like we, we need to back off. We need to do something to get them feeling better in general. And, and, you know, 50% of our job is probably placebo placebo and saying like, Hey, if you come in here and you feel better, that's great. Cause it's going to go onto the field. You're going to sleep better. You're going to have a better emotional relationship with yourself and to your friends and family. And that's going to spill into the field. It's like, okay, if that means we're going to be doing like playing tag with some of our college guys for a day and that's not all we do, but like, if that's what we did, so what we got a good training effect, right? Right. Right. Well, that's, I think what to, to, to kind of piggyback off that, the thing I've noticed is, most people, when they think about training, it's in the weight room, it's in, it's in the gym. And then we're going to go sprint. Those, those two things, right? It's conditioning strength and then sprint. Yep. Whereas I think very similar to you, like last year, when we did our, our velo lab, we played ultimate Frisbee. We took them rock climbing. We took them out to, you know, play some basketball. Like they're just, it, let them be athletes. And like you said, you're training all those things without any them even thinking about it. They're getting some good recovery, some good conditioning. They're getting that, you know, zone one, zone two, most of the time, just hanging out in there, getting some good blood flow, building up their blood cells, but they don't think about it as that. Right. But exactly. we're getting that effect. And I think that's, it's, 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 it's hard to explain to the kids. It's hard to explain to parents sometimes like, Oh, why aren't they, you know, lifting? Why aren't they sprinting? It's like, sometimes we need to be able to get them to do other things because our jobs as trainers is to help them become better athletes. What are your main training buckets that you want athletes to make sure that they're filling? So between whether it's a mobility thing, whether it's a strength mm-hmm. thing, you know, those kinds of things, what are like, yeah. the, what are, obviously there, it's going to be a little more general, but yeah. what are the things they need to think about? So, so, um, more, more narrowed down for baseball players using the 90 mile an hour formula stuff. We look at our lunge deadlift chin up and our lunge number is we want one and a half times their body weight, um, on the bar externally loaded, um, for, for one rep on each side, clear form, 
Um, no, no compensations going down or up, uh, good cervical, um, uh, good posture, good cervical control. Um, our deadlift, we want a 400 pound pull off the ground. Um, I don't care what variation we use, trap bar, deadlift, um, sumo, conventional, doesn't matter to me. Um, again, controlling that spine. And then we use a chin up of 250 pounds total load. So if you're a 200 pound athlete, um, we strap 50 pounds to you. We do one chin up all the way up, chest touch the bar, control yourself all the way down. Um, and the reason I say that as our, our metric to answer this question is because that is our target where we know for our baseball players, for instance, we know we can be metric driven. We know if you can hit those metrics um, along with a long toss and some in a body weight uh, coefficient that we have, we know we can get you 90 off the mound. We, we, have, we have that down pat. We're comfortable with that. But you're going to get certain things that shake out in these moves. I have so many athletes that used to um, bark and basically be like, hey, your formula is BS. Like I blew out my elbow. Like I had Tommy John surgery and I could hit all the metrics. And I'm like, I'm like, oh man, like, and this would happen daily for years. And, and now it doesn't seem to happen very often, but, um, and I'd be like, great, what are your numbers? And they, they'd omit, they'd omit the lunge usually. And they're like, well, I couldn't lunge. I'm like, well, why couldn't you lunge? They're like, well, I had knee pain when I was lunging. Well, then you couldn't lunge. Like you couldn't hit the formula. Right. So like the self checks are in there. And the other self checks we have is just like being healthy. Like, like, are you healthy enough to get onto the field every day? Because that is our number one goal. Um, I don't care if you throw in 102, if you're on DL every single week, it's not going to matter. So looking at them uh, in the movements in the gym and making sure that those are pain-free and clear and that we can load them enough so they have enough volume tolerance and stress tolerance on their muscular system and their nervous system um, to be able to go out and compete and throw uh, or run or swing at the velocity they're looking to. Uh, and then they're able to do it on the field pain-free. Those are the buckets I'm looking for. It's, it's again, it's, it's all working backwards, figuring out exactly what's the end target. Uh, we have, we have lots of cases that get referred to us on guys that have like medial elbow pain, pronator flexor pain, like feels like UCL, but, but UCL is clean on MRI, um, which is usually like fantastic when we see that because usually, you know, people have little dinged up MRIs anyways. So when we get something like that, it's like, all right, why can't they handle that load tolerance? Is it, is it, can they handle a chin up? A lot of times they go and do a bodyweight chin up and they're like, oh my God, my pronator flexor is killing me. Well, we have, we know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to hammer that in therapy. We're going to make sure we work around it in training, but our goal is to get back to it. And it may be, I think I'm pretty aggressive when we're returning to throw with certain things, but if you look at like standard return to throwing protocols, they're not looking at any of these strength metrics. They're not looking at, um, you know, pain-free movements in the gym. They're not looking at quality of lunge. They're not looking at quality of throws. We're looking at all of those things. And if you can't, if I don't care if your doctors cleared you and you can bench press 300 pounds, you can deadlift six and you can lunge 400 pounds. If you can't do a bodyweight chin-up to control yourself all the way up and down pain-free, I don't want you touching a baseball. It's Oh, wow. So many, so many questions just popped into my head with this <laughs> for where, what, what is the significance of 400 pounds? Let's say the person only weighs a buck 80, right? Are you still, you still want them to get to that 400? Like what, what or does the body weight play into that at all? How do you, how do so, you calculate that? So when we look at, so when we look at, um, the formula, our, our force production and anti-flexion, um, movement is, is going to be our deadlift. So I look at that as like our baseline is 400 pounds. Um, I wish I could cite a research study that would say, this is exactly why, but we don't have that information. All, all I know is, is that we had, I stopped counting at about 2000 data points almost 10 years ago, 2000 athletes we ran through, and we found a very distinct uh, delineation. Once they hit that 400 pound mark, it was, it was a game changer. Um, that is, and that is an absolute strength metric. If you look at our lunge metric, it's a relative strength metric. So we're filling both of those buckets. The lunge metric is, you know, one and a half times their body weight uh, in external load for a reverse lunge, one on each side, or their body weight on the bar for a set of 10 on each side. Mm-hmm. Um, that Those metrics are relative and versus the absolute. So we're filling different buckets. And if you want to throw 90, like 
you need to be able to put a certain amount of force into the ground. Like there's like, we have to, we can go and look at different studies. We can argue the different loading patterns. We can say, Oh, one guy's more quote unquote fast switch. And he's really skinny and he can throw 96, but he can't deadlift 300 pounds. Like, okay, well maybe that's a liability in my opinion Mm. um, for, for your ability to handle stress and and without citing names, but go look at some of the guys who maybe six, two to six, four weigh 180 pounds or, and are going on their second Tommy Johns. It's like, well, maybe they, maybe they need to hit our baseline metrics for our, our body weight because maybe their body is designed not to handle that amount of stress. Mm. Just, just a thought. Like I, I, and there's plenty of, there's outliers everywhere in baseball. These are just general rules that we know have, have filled good buckets for us. And, and that's what we need. We need to be able to have absolute and relative strength. Yeah, no, and that's and that's what I, it's it's. I think when if it's not a study, people tend to knock it immediately. If it's not out in a journal and it's not you know researched like crazy, not saying you didn't, but more so, it's like it's not it's not out there in an actual study. I think people tend to go, well, that's that doesn't work. Then we don't know, but like you have to use your eye as well because it's what's in front of you. And and it's about it's about reading between the lines. So BMAC. Um, and I'm going to screw up his title right now. He he's the president of uh, play. I think player development or player performance uh, player for performance. the Dodgers. Player yeah. performance for the Dodgers. And so BMAC and I were, were talking about this when um, oh god, probably in like 2020. And um, and he was like, you know, we we don't we don't really reverse lunge any of our guys. And and I was like, I'm I'm kind of surprised, like because he's like because he's he's like a fan of. I would say he's a fan of like the the thought process of the formula stuff. Totally. And I'm like, totally. I'm like, really? I'm like, BMAC. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, we got, we got, he's like, we got a lot of guys in their thirties and older. And he's like, a lot of them have arthritic toes. He's like, it pisses their toes off. And, and so from, from that stance and, and him and I could go back and forth all day long. Like, well, I could be like, well, then maybe we should fix their arthritic toes. Right. So that they could lunge again in those positions because they're going to be in those positions anyways when they're playing baseball, right? Right. But he's like, he's like, but in in our training setting, he's like, I just don't want to piss them off. So we'll go rear foot elevated. We'll do we'll do um, sometimes split stance depending on the person. Um, we'll do a forward line. Like he he went into all of these other parameters that they use. He just is like we don't do as much reverse lunging as probably you would because you know we we have these people with arthritic toes. Right. That is a perfect example of taking something, reading between the lines, and being like, "Hey, there's there's applicability um, to all of it. It just right. depends." And it and if you came in and you had arthritic toes and we needed a training effect today, well, I'm not going to be jamming your toe into the ground so that you're pissed off for another week and you can't train. So it's a perfect utilization of those tools. Yeah, no, it's true because even in that moment, it's like, all right, well, we only have X amount of time. What do we need to focus on more, and how can we kind of attack the other thing, you know, at another time, or maybe we give them stuff on their own to get out of that arthritic, you know, uh, state in their toes. So, yeah, it's it, it can be tough. It can be challenging, you know, yep. because you have to think about all these factors. Uh, plus, you're playing with people's psyches, and at the you know the pro level, you're playing with their livelihoods. Absolutely. And, and a part of, I mean, the number one part of our job at the beginning is like buy-in. Right. If you're pissing someone's foot off every single day, they're not going to buy-in. Right. Yeah. No, it's very true. All right. So let's, let's talk recovery because, uh, we, we talked about, you know, kind of how you program, what you look for, uh, how are, how are you looking into recovery and what are some of your favorite modalities that you'd love to use or maybe refer? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty simple. Um, in general, I think you know, my baseline is, uh, I often talk about a thousand calories before 9am Yep. as, um, as our goal for our athletes. And, and I get, a, I get a good amount of pushback on it, but we'll even use that with our female athletes, depending, depending on the athlete, their size and their goals. But like sure, most athletes, in my opinion, just are undernourished. And, and when I say undernourished, they might have enough calories, but they're not eating enough quality calories. Right. So that is an easy domino to to fix, uh, for a lot of them. Uh, and I think the, the thousand calories before 9am, usually when they look at that, they get, they, they're like, they start to challenge themselves. Like how healthy can I make this? Um, you know, and if the, and if all they do, if all we're doing is going from, you know, 2000 calories a day for some of these younger athletes, um, and they go hundred percent garbage to 
they have a really solid breakfast that they turn into two meals because they can only eat 500, 500 calories in each sitting. So they have one at seven, they have one at nine and they get a thousand calories of pretty darn high quality food. You know what? We're going to move, we're going to move a pretty big domino there. Uh, especially if we get enough fats and uh, high quality proteins and then get some carbohydrates in there. It's great. Um, so that's kind of my number, my, my lead domino for almost everybody. Um, and the reason why I think that works so well is because then it forces, especially the younger athletes with, with poor habits, they start to freak out like, well, I can't eat thousand calories before I get to school. So what do they do? They they're like, well, I have to get up earlier. And what do they have to do to get up earlier? They go to bed earlier. And if they get, go to bed earlier, now we're talking where the real recovery happens is when they're sleeping. So can they get seven to 10 hours of sleep? Um, you know, I, I want our athletes to be above that six hour mark, ideally when, when possible, but most of them in that seven to 10 hour range. And, and from there, you know, then we start, then we can start tinkering with, with other things, but, um, you know, I, I like cold plunge stuff. I think there's a lot of benefit to it. Um, uh, I think the sauna has some benefit. Uh, I mean, there's definitely research the sauna has benefit, but, uh, I think, I think, um, it just depends on the athlete, but I really think for the mass majority of all the populations we work with, if we can knock, knock our guys to get, um, you know, one gram of protein per pound of body weight and then get eight hours of sleep. I mean, anything above that is like super icing on the cake. In my opinion, I, I yeah. think it's so, I think it's so valuable that, that even when, I'll test supplements and like, and I, and I'm a big fan of creatine. We use creatine with our athletes regularly, as long as they put on 20 to 40 pounds of mass on their own through food. Um, I think there's a huge benefit to it. There's really very minimal reason not to use it. Um, yeah, these things have their place, but nothing, nothing I've ever seen, nothing legal I've ever seen has produced the results of eating regular high quality food and getting enough sleep. And and naps, and I'd throw naps into that as a sneaky, sneaky thing that you can really change your whole ability to recover by throwing an extra nap, whether it's 20 to 90 minutes in there. Yeah. I, I, even just to like a, even closing your eyes, you don't necessarily need to fall asleep, but just letting your body rest and your mind rest for a few minutes for sure. Absolutely. Um, and, and I'll tell you that, um, I used to be a horrid, horrid sleeper, um, and it took me years to navigate, but I'll tell you that the most life-changing things for me have been uh, a sleep mask, uh, blue light glasses, two hours before I go to bed. Um, uh, I drink, I drink like a chamomile tea before I go to bed most nights. Um, and then, and then making sure that, um, you know, my phone in this one, this one's sneaky. Um, hmm. when I put my phone on a different floor, so, uh, like I sleep upstairs, my phone stays in the kitchen. Um, I can tell you immediately my sweep quality goes way up. I, I used to just, and I still do this, but, uh, I started a few years ago, uh, keeping it outside of the bedroom, hundred percent, didn't have any screens yep. in there and then completely yep. shut it off now. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it is a weird, I don't know if it's an energetic thing. I don't know if it's a unconscious thing. That we just, yep. you know, we've become so tied to them, which is yep. sad in a way. Uh, I understand the benefits of them, but at the same time, we like we're so reliant on them. It's it's yeah. it's in our hands twenty four seven. Yeah, and and I'll tell you that, um, oh God, probably six or eight months ago, I I put my phone on uh, grayscale, and that has been that has been a big big difference. It's almost yeah. What's what were you gonna say? What's grayscale? grayscale. Uh, okay, so. Um, if you go into your phone and do you use an iPhone? Yep. Do you have an iPhone near you? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Where's it? Yeah. yeah this is good. No, I think because I, yeah, I know, I know. Um, uh, this will be good uh, because the people at home listening will, um, likely be able to do this for themselves. It's funny. Go to, go to your settings on your iPhone yep, in and settings and then go to accessibility. Accessibility. Let's see. This sounds like me. I used to work at AT&T, man. I feel like I'm there getting around. <laughs> Uh, it's I mean, under gen. It's under general. Yep, accessibility, and then display and text size. Yep, see it. And then you're going to scroll down to colors and filters. Oh yeah. And then where that says colors and filters, hit the little um, button little next toggle. to it. Yep. And know. and I'll give you all right. So so for the people at home that just did this, as one of my my guys, uh, Joe Zangi, who um, is uh, on his re back back to uh, recovery post Tommy John, he said to me, he goes. 
once you see it like this, and I've used it before, but he kind of solidified. He's like, your phone almost becomes unusable. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, he goes, just leave it for a day. Keep it for a day. And you're going to be like, oh, I don't want to look at this. When my son, my four-year-old son grabs my phone, he goes, color, please. Um, color, because, please. Because the vibrance of the color. And, and I mean, these tech companies are brilliant because they want, they want us to be engaged because this is this feedback that we get. Um, those colors, I'll tell you, I feel burned out. If I, if I spend, if I'm doing an Instagram post or something, I spend an hour on Instagram and I'm like writing it out and I have all the colors in me, or I'm like engaging in something I can feel like, I'm like, Ooh, I'm a little zapped right now. Like I need to go for a walk or whatever. Grayscale. I don't feel that. And I think, and I, and I do, I do not know if it still omits like blue light or whatnot. I still wear my blue light glasses, but I'll tell you, it feels like I've been using my blue light glasses um, throughout the day. So very interesting little tool, but I'll tell you that your screen track, your screen time usage over like previous weeks to this week when you start doing that and you'll see a dip big time. This is it. It's so, it's so weird seeing it like it's right. Right. It's like, you're you're like, Oh, it's like gross. (laughs) Wow. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to test that out for the, for the day and see how I do it. And see, and see if it changes anything in your sleep. I know my whoop scores go up when my gray scales on. Yeah, I, I will definitely track that. I'm going to, I'm going to see I'm, I never, no one's ever talked about that. So I'm very curious to see how it does. It's crazy looking at it. I'm weirded out a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, okay, cool, man. I, we're running a a little short on time. So I wanted to cover, uh, let me see, uh, where do I want to go with this coordination, gathering energy, being able to redistribute energy, deceleration, uh, all these things are kind of things I focus on when I, when I'm working with my athletes, especially like in warmups, especially in our, our, uh, like our pogo series, or even just like being athletic. I want you to just jump in doing some random things. So why is it, why is it so important for athletes to understand how to use that ground to create force? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the fundamental of of sport. It's like, whoever can do that best will win. Well, not will win, but they're going to have the best loading patterns and they're going to be able to produce the most amount of force. So, uh, you know, we, we load them through lots of different ways. We test, we test, um, uh, I like, I like testing broad jump. Um, sometimes we'll use different vert tests. Uh, we use a Proteus, um, at our facility. Yeah. It gives, gives a lot of good feedback. Um, and I think, and, and for us, it's, it's been really good about validating, what we're doing in training. It hasn't probably changed a lot of what we do, but uh, it will, it does validate that a lot of our strength movements that we deem as like big pillars um, and big dominoes influence our rotational power, which is great. And that, that validates a lot of what we're looking at. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the name of the game. The quicker that you can rebound and respond or decelerate. And I think the, the number one skill for a field sport athlete is the ability to decelerate. You could do that faster than someone else. That's how you see someone get burned on, on a football field. That's how you see, um, you know, real hard cut of, um, change of directions that allow people to do, um, the moves that we would deem of like, Oh my God, how does that person do that? That is, that is usually dictated by their ability to decelerate. Yeah. And is it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but would you say it's more that ability to decelerate, control that deceleration with good angles and then redistribute that, that energy? Yes, but I would argue and and feel free to push back, but I would argue that I have never seen a great decelerator have a poor ability to accelerate. Sure. Sure, yeah. And they, I, and and, 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 and there, there, there's definitely going to be someone out there who's like, "Well, this guy." And maybe that's true, but I'll tell you that like course. if we have to train one quality, I would just hammer deceleration because because even you think like you think like isos, right? If you're going to go if you want if you want to take a wide receiver and be able to have them cut um, and decelerate better. You put them in a um, split stand, split squat, have them hold that position. Let's say we're going to hold for time or, or we're going to hold under significant load under time. Um, they're not only getting that isometric, right? They're, they're getting different ranges because the isometric is going to change a large train, a larger range than just that isometric uh, angle that they're at. But also you're getting contractile forces where it's where you're trying, if you're doing an isometric properly, you're trying to contract. So you're not just you're you're yes, there's no length change, but you're still getting these muscular contractions that are going to help you transition to your concentric. Yeah, no, it's it's it. I like hearing how other people teach that and like how they train it or the philosophy on it, because I do think it is something that we don't. What's your take? What's your take? How would you disagree or, or how would you, how do you verbalize it differently? 
I don't, I don't know that I necessarily verbalize it differently. I just think the thing that I see, especially with the younger guys, uh, high school guys, it's just the amount of, it's just control. It's more about their, their body positioning rather than, and once I fix that, it automatically changes. It's like, they're better. It's just that they don't understand their, their open space, how to control that. Right. So let's say we're going to, you know, we're running, we're doing a, a lateral shuffle and then we're going to cut back and turn and go, or even the 60 yard. We can say yeah. you know, your start from the 60 yard you have to be able to create a good angle from that position. And a lot of times that stop and go, we see that sway of the upper body over the leg as opposed to sitting, sinking into the hip and creating that nice shin angle. And so I think more so it's not even just uh, like, I, I think more so for me, it's angles and being able to teach them how to get into the position because I think then it's like, okay, now go faster, now go faster, now go faster, you know, kind of what I go into the Tiger Woods, uh, his dad, he would say this. And I tell my athletes yep. all, this, all the time is, I want you to swing as hard as you can every time, as long as you're in control. And yep. it's the same concept for me is like, I want you guys to hit these angles. Okay, do it slow, do it at like 20%, do it at like 30%, hold it for a second, see what it feels like. Okay, now come out of it a little faster, do it a little faster. Now let's do the, the go into that position. Now get out of it as fast as you can. So yep. I, I don't know if it necessarily differs. I just think I think more about angles and positioning. And I think that's what I'm I'm presented with as a, as an issue or a, yeah. a, a problem solving, uh, you know, something I need to, uh, to solve more so than I do like thinking about the actual decelerations. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's one, I think it's, I think it's the same exact thing. We're just looking at two different sides. That's why, it's why we, you know, it's why we vibe, man. I love it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I got two more questions for you here. Um, I, as a leader and a, a coach, how have you evolved uh, since you started in the field? You know, like what are the pick two things, you know, pick two things. One is a leader, one is a coach that you think like have been your biggest evolutionary change. You can give uh, some advice to a younger coach, maybe younger athlete. Um, as a leader, I feel like I feel like um, it's always about trying to figure out the end goal of what of what that person what's really driving that person. Um and and figuring out where they want to go because i think i think a lot of people have this vision and don't realize that um they want to follow other people's footsteps and don't realize that life is like super dynamic and that every situation is very different and although there might be paths that seem better um or or more you know more worn down that are easier to follow um that still may not service their goals and I think redirecting, helping to redirect and navigate them to their goals allows them to grow and evolve um, so that they don't fall into the, the patterns of just other people. Because what, what's beautiful about, you know, people and the world and, and also the internet is like what makes, what makes people want to follow someone different on, on the, on like Instagram or something is because they're unique. It's not because they do the same thing. Right. And, and right. what I, there, there are athletes that come in to our office and they want to work with me and I meet them and I'm like, you can work with me. We will, we will do stuff together, but you belong with, you know, like our director in Stanford is Brian D'Onofrio. You belong with Brian because Brian, Brian has a different way of approaching athletes than I do. I'm, I'm a, I'm a very different person than he is. And he's right. very different than me. And, and our styles are overlap immensely, but like, that's the right, that's the right move for that person in terms of our athletes. I think continually, uh, very similar to the the leadership stuff. It's like continually figuring out who they who they are and who they want to be as an athlete. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you that the further we get into this stuff, um, and we're lucky, and and I love our ATP clients. We're very very lucky to have them because they're they're special, they're unique humans. But I'll tell you that we get a lot more athletes coming in now that that will start working off with us that are like high end college or pro guys that are like, Hey, I'm going to do like a month or two stint with you guys. I'm gonna fly in, work on some stuff. Cool. And we'll do some deep digging. And after, after a little bit, I'm like, like, you know, what do you want to be doing? And they're like, and we kind of comes out, they're like, I hate baseball. And I'm like, well, you're getting play, paid to play baseball right now. So do you want to, do you want a job and continue to do this as a job? Or do you want to do something else? And like, a lot of times they're like, I want to do something else. I'm like, cool. Like, but, but understanding that, like, at the end of the day, that's, um, I don't care. I, it doesn't, that's not, I'm not going to sleep any different at night. I'm probably going to sleep better because I was able to help them reach their real goal. And a lot of times figuring out who they are as a person and not, not the family member that wanted them to play baseball or realizing that like they, 
they're like telling me they fell out of love of baseball because of a certain mm-hmm. coach or something like that. It's like, well, can we find your love for baseball again? Like, mm-hmm. is it still there? Or do you just hate that coach so much? Or is it like, did you ever even like baseball? And, and I think those are, those are the little tools that like, when you start to really dig those things down. Um, and that's why, like we started our conversation about like the role of a strength conditioning coach for me is like, it's super dynamic. It's like, it has to be right. Like, I don't want to be working with an athlete that doesn't, I don't care if you're making a million bucks a year, if you don't want to be on the field and you don't enjoy the process of it. And it, like other people are going to beat you out and that's okay. That they're, maybe someone has never told them that that, that is okay to not right. like baseball. And right. if you choose to play because it puts food on your, on your table, great. If you choose to quit because you're, I hate it and my life is miserable, perfectly fine too. Yeah. I, I don't think people look into them themselves enough. I don't think there's enough internal reflection, understanding, because you're right. People do follow in the footsteps of others many times. This is literally my slogan for my, my brand. This is be yourself understand who you are and and go out and, and you have to figure it out. It's a, it's a constant evolution of yourself. And I think that there's going to be transitions in life. You're going to go through a lot of different times in life. That's going to teach you things about yourself. And like you said, you might, you might wake up one day and you're like, I don't really want to do this anymore. And that's mm-hmm. okay. Like you said, and I, I love that outlook on it because you know, life is dynamic and we as coaches need to be dynamic because we're dealing with people's uh, psyches, their, their dynamic lives as well. And so oh, I love that. Um, all right. So, Last question here. It's a little bit of a fun one. Uh, I'm going to go down the music route. I feel like you, you got a lot of books behind you. I was going to go TV show, but I'm going to go music. Okay. Uh, who's your go-to? Like, you know, Oof. no matter what, I can absolutely jam out. I can, you know, bop, whatever, whatever the case is. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to give you a... Do you need two? I was like, no, yeah, I, I, I need a couple. All right. Okay. Okay. I, I, I bought tickets to a tool concert this morning. Um, nice. so that's, so that's, that's different. Um, I am, I love the EDM world. I like cascade dead mouse. Those are like, I could listen to any of those. Um, and then like nineties, nineties rap, like Tupac, Biggie, Jay-Z. That's like, those are like my go, go to's. If I need, if I had to listen to like one, one artist for the rest of my life, it would probably be like the nineties hip hop. It's kind of hard to get away from that. I get it. Yeah. It's I grew up in that too, man. Yeah, yep. you grew up. It's funny. You grew up on the East Coast. I grew up on the West Coast, uh, and you know we had that the West Coast East Coast little battle and stuff. But it all it all played, especially in the '90s, man. '90s, early 2000s was just was just fun. What's just your go to? Uh, I'd say yeah. I would say it's rap. Any kind. I'm gonna say any kind of rap, but you know anything that uh, definitely '90s hip hop. You know, uh, Dr. Dre, Eminem, uh, Tupac for sure, yeah. Snoop. Uh, you name yeah. any of those guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and uh, I mean, if you're going to go way back, I would say, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to say this way back. Obviously, Lincoln Park's not way back, but Lincoln Park oh, is yeah. a huge one for me. Uh, yep. Tom Petty would be way back. That's more of my, you know, 70s vibe type, you know, style. Uh, I, I listen, I'm very, I listen to everything, but yeah, hip hop and, and Lincoln Park were probably my two, you know, go tos. So, hell yeah. I love it, man. Uh, all right, I got a roll. I know you do too. Uh, we'll. Uh, I would love to uh, thank you so much for for taking the time to be here. I, I thanks for having fantastic me. conversation. Uh, I wanted to give you the the moment just to if you want anyone, you know, hey, what do you offer? What do you what links do you have? I'll put all that in the show notes. But where can people yep. reach out to you? Where can they follow you? Yeah, best place to grab me is uh, at Doctor Heenan H E E N A N um, on Instagram and then our advanced therapy and performance, uh, website, we offer onsite, uh, training and therapy, um, in Connecticut. And then I do stuff out here in Denver. Um, and then our remote services there is probably our most well-known flagship product where we, we have, you know, we train over a thousand athletes, a thousand throwers a year all around the world. Um, and you know, we, we offer that at under 50 bucks a month. So it's a really high quality service. You get to interact with our team and also, um, you know, you get to see some really good results too. So it's, uh, that's, that's really our bread and butter. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Josh, man, thank you so much for your time, for your knowledge, all the answers. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You got it. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Josh Heenan so many tidbits that I picked up. And you know, the number one thing is just keeping it simple when it comes to nutrition and recovery and making sure that you're getting the right amount of calories, making sure that they're not empty calories, but they're filled with nutrients, vitamins, minerals, the things that help you keep going. 
Sleep is so important and you have to have it. If you don't have that as well, your body's not gonna be able to repair and that's actually when you grow the most. So you gotta make sure that you're getting the sleep. My last takeaway was the movements and maxes and how they actually go hand in hand, where I think a lot of people tend to lean on the side of it's only movement, it's only maxes, but the reality is we need both. We need both in order for our body to adapt and to stay safe. So I hope you guys learned something from this episode. If you have any questions at all, please feel free to reach out to me. You could find me on Instagram at IamCoachU, YouTube at CoachU, and I'm also on TikTok at IamCoachU. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend. Make sure to subscribe and hit that like button. All of this helps me as this is my passion project and I love putting this information out. So please help support me, help support you. All right, everybody, that's it for today's episode. As always, I'm going to remind you, fail, learn, and evolve. Whatever mission you're on, whatever you're trying to accomplish in this life, get after it. You're going to learn from your failures. That's the only way you're going to grow. That's the only way you're going to be able to evolve into you. Until next time, this is Coach You. Peace. Peace.